This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Miscellany of Men by G. K. Chesterton. Section 12 The Divine Detective. Every person of sound education enjoys detective stories, and there are even several points on which they have a hearty superiority to most modern books. A detective story generally describes six living men discussing how it is that a man is dead. A modern philosophic story generally describes six dead men discussing how any man can possibly be alive. But those who have enjoyed the Roman policier must have noted one thing, that when the murderer is caught, he is hardly ever hanged. That, says Sherlock Holmes, is the advantage of being a private detective. After he has caught, he can set free. The Christian Church can best be defined as an enormous private detective, correcting that official detective, the state. This indeed is one of the injustices done to historic Christianity, injustices which arise from looking at complex exceptions and not at the large and simple fact. We are constantly being told that theologians used racks and thumbscrews, and so they did. Theologians used racks and thumbscrews just as they used thimbles and three-legged stools, because everybody else used them. Christianity no more created the medieval tortures than it did the Chinese tortures. It inherited them from any empire, as heathen as the Chinese. The church did, in an evil hour, consent to imitate the commonwealth and employ cruelty. But if we open our eyes and take in the whole picture, if we look at the general shape and color of the thing, the real difference between the church and the state is huge and plain. The state in all lands and ages has created a machinery of punishment, more bloody and brutal in some places than others, but bloody and brutal everywhere. The church is the only institution that ever attempted to create a machinery of pardon. The church is the only thing that ever attempted by system to pursue and discover crimes, not in order to avenge, but in order to forgive them. The stake and rack were merely the weakness of the religion, its snobberies, its surrenders to the world. Its specialty, or if you like, its oddity, was this merciless mercy, the unrelenting sleuth-hound who seeks to save and not slay. I can best illustrate what I mean by referring to two popular plays on somewhat parallel topics, which have been successful here and in America. The passing of the third floor back is a humane and reverent experiment, dealing with the influence of one unknown but divine figure as he passes through a group of squalid characters. I have no desire to make cheap fun of the extremely abrupt conversions of all these people. That is a point of art, not of morals. And after all, many conversions have been abrupt. This Savior's method of making people good is to tell them how good they are already. And in the case of suicidal outcasts, 
whose moral backs are broken and who are soaked with sincere self-contempt, I can imagine that this might be quite the right way. I should not deliver this message to authors or members of Parliament because they would so heartily agree with it. Still, it is not altogether here that I differ from the moral of Mr. Jerome's play. I differ vitally from his story because it is not a detective story. There is in it none of this great Christian idea of tearing their evil out of men. It lacks the realism of the saints. Redemption should bring truth as well as peace. And truth is a fine thing, though the materialists did go mad about it. Things must be faced, even in order to be forgiven. The great objection to letting sleeping dogs lie is that they lie in more senses than one. But in Mr. Jerome's passing of the third floor back, the Redeemer is not a divine detective, pitiless in his resolve to know and pardon. Rather, he is a sort of divine dupe, who does not pardon at all, because he does not see anything that is going on. It may or may not be true to say, tut comprende as tut pardoner, but it is much more evidently true to say, rain comprende est rain pardoner. And the third floor back does not seem to comprehend anything. He might, after all, be a quite selfish sentimentalist who found it comforting to think well of his neighbors. There is nothing very heroic in loving after you have been deceived. The heroic business is to love after you have been undeceived. When I saw this play, it was natural to compare it with another play which I had not seen, but which I have read in its printed version. I mean Mr. Ran Kennedy's servant in the house, the success of which sprawls over so many of the American newspapers. This also is concerned with a dim yet evidently divine figure changing the destinies of a whole group of persons. It is a better play structurally than the other. In fact, it is a very fine play indeed, but there is nothing aesthetic or fastidious about it. It is as much or more than the other sensational, democratic, and if I use the word in a sound and good sense, salvationist. But the difference lies precisely in this, that the Christ of Mr. Kennedy's play insists on really knowing all the souls that he loves. He declines to conquer by a kind of supernatural stupidity. He pardons evil, but he will not ignore it. In other words, he is a Christian and not a Christian scientist. The distinction, doubtless, is partly explained by the problems severally selected. Mr. Jerome practically supposes Christ to be trying to save disreputable people, and that, of course, is naturally a simple business. Mr. Kennedy supposes him to be trying to save the reputable people, which is a much larger affair. The chief characters in The Servant in the House are a popular and strenuous vicar, universally respected and his fashionable and forcible wife. It would have been no good to tell these people they had some good in them, for that was what they were telling themselves all day long. They had to be reminded that they had some bad in them, instinctive idolatries and silent treasons, which they always tried to forget. 
It is in connection with these crimes of wealth and culture that we face the real problem of positive evil. The whole of Mr. Blatchford's controversy about sin was vitiated throughout by one's consciousness that whenever he wrote the word sinner, he thought of a man in rags. But here again we can find truth merely by referring to vulgar literature, its unfailing fountain. Whoever reads a detective story about poor people, the poor have crimes, but the poor have no secrets. And it is because the proud have secrets that they need to be detected before they are forgiven. THE ELF OF JAPAN There are things in this world of which I can say seriously that I love them, but I do not like them. The point is not merely verbal, but psychologically quite valid. Cats are the first things that occur to me as examples of the principle. Cats are so beautiful that a creature from another star might fall in love with them, and so incalculable that he might kill them. Some of my friends take quite a high moral line about cats. Some, like Mr. Titterton, I think, admire a cat for its moral independence and readiness to scratch anybody if he does not behave himself. Others, like Mr. Bellow, regard the cat as cruel and secret, a fit friend for witches, one who will devour everything except, indeed, poisoned food, so utterly lacking is it in Christian simplicity and humility. For my part, I have neither of these feelings. I admire cats as I admire catkins, those little fluffy things that hang on trees. They are both pretty and both furry, and both declare the glory of God. And this abstract exultation in all living things is truly to be called love, for it is a higher feeling than mere affectional convenience. It is a vision. It is heroic and even saintly in this, that it asks for nothing in return. I love all the cats in the street, as St. Francis of Assisi loved all the birds in the wood, or all the fishes in the sea. Not so much, of course, but then I am not a saint. But he did not wish to bridle a bird and ride on its back, as one bridles and rides on a horse. He did not wish to put a collar round a fish's neck, marked with the name Francis and the address Assisi, as one does with a dog. He did not wish them to belong to him, or himself to belong to them. In fact, it would be a very awkward experience to belong to a lot of fishes. But a man does belong to his dog, in another but equally real sense with that in which the dog belongs to him. The two bonds of obedience and responsibility vary very much with the dogs and the men, but they are both bonds. In other words, a man does not merely love a dog as he might, in a mystical moment, love any sparrow that perched on his windowsill or any rabbit that ran across his path. A man likes a dog, and that is a serious matter. To me, unfortunately perhaps, for I speak merely of individual taste, a cat is a wild animal. A cat is nature personified. Like nature, it is so mysterious that one cannot quite repose even in its beauty. 
But like nature again, it is so beautiful that one cannot believe that it is really cruel. Perhaps it isn't, and there again it is like nature. Men of old time worshipped cats as they worshipped crocodiles, and those magnificent old mystics knew what they were about. The moment in which one really loves cats is the same as that in which one, moderately and within reason, loves crocodiles. It is that divine instant when a man feels himself, no, not absorbed into the unity of all things, a loathsome fancy, but delighting in the difference of all things. At the moment when a man really knows he is a man, he will feel, however faintly, a kind of fairy-tale pleasure in the fact that a crocodile is a crocodile. All the more will he exult in the things that are more evidently beautiful than crocodiles, such as flowers and birds and cats, which are more beautiful than either. But it does not follow that he will wish to pick all the flowers, or to cage all the birds, or to own all the cats. No one who still believes in democracy and the rights of man will admit that any division between men and men can be anything but a fanciful analogy to the division between men and animals. But in the sphere of such fanciful analogy, there are even human beings whom I feel to be like cats in this respect, that I can love them without liking them. I feel it about certain quaint and alien societies, especially about the Japanese. The exquisite old Japanese draughtsmanship, of which we shall see no more, now Japan has gone in for progress and imperialism, had a quality that was infinitely attractive and intangible. Japanese pictures were really rather like pictures made by cats. They were full of feathery softness and of sudden and spirited scratches. If anyone will wander in some gallery, fortunate enough to have a fine collection of those slight water-colored sketches on rice paper which come from the remote ease, he will observe many elements in them which a fanciful person might consider feline. There is, for instance, that odd enjoyment of the tops of trees, those airy traceries of forks and fading twigs, up to which certainly no artist but only a cat could climb. There is that elvish love of the full moon, as large and lucid as a Chinese lantern, hung in these tenuous branches. That moon is so large and luminous that one can imagine a hundred cats howling under it. Then there is the exhaustive treatment of the anatomy of birds and fish, subjects in which cats are said to be interested. Then there is the slanting, cat-like eyes of all these eastern gods and men. But this is getting altogether too coincident. We shall have another racial theory in no time beginning, are the Japanese cats? And though I shall not believe in my theories, somebody else might. There are people among my esteemed correspondents who might believe anything. It is enough for me to say here that in this small respect, Japanese affect me like cats. I mean that I love them. I love their quaint and native poetry, their instinct of easy civilization, their unique, unreplaceable art, the testimony they bear to the bustling, irrepressible activities of nature and a man. If I were a real mystic looking down on them from a real mountain, I am sure I should love them more even than the strong-winged and unwearied birds or the fruitful, ever-multiplying fish. 
But as for liking them as one likes a dog, that is quite another matter. That would mean trusting them. In the old English and Scotch ballads, the fairies are regarded very much in the way that I feel inclined to regard Japanese and cats. They are not especially spoken of as evil. They are enjoyed as witching and wonderful, but they are not trusted as good. You do not say the wrong words or give the wrong gifts to them, and there is a curious silence about what would happen to you if you did. Now to me, Japan, the Japan of art, was always a fairyland. What trees as gay as flowers, and peaks as white as wedding cakes, what lanterns as large as houses, and houses as frail as lanterns, but, but the missionary explained, I read in the paper, that the assertion and denial about the Japanese use of torture was a mere matter of verbal translation. The Japanese would not call twisting the thumbs back torture. The Chartered Libertine I find myself in agreement with Mr. Robert Lind for his most just remark in connection with the Malatesta case that the police are becoming a peril to society. I have no attraction to that sort of atheist asceticism to which the purer types of anarchism tend. But both an atheist and an ascetic are better men than a spy, and it is ignominious to see one's country thus losing her special point of honor about asylum and liberty. It will be quite a new departure if we begin to protect and whitewash foreign policemen. I always understood it was only English policemen who were absolutely spotless. A good many of us, however, have begun to feel with Mr. Lind, and on all sides authorities and officials are being questioned. But there is one most graphic and extraordinary fact which did not lie in Mr. Lind's way to touch upon, but which somebody really must seize and emphasize. It is this that at the very time when we are all beginning to doubt these authorities, we are letting laws pass to increase their most capricious powers. All our commissions, petitions, and letters to the papers are asking whether these authorities can give an account of their stewardship, and at the same moment all our laws are decreeing that they shall not give any account of their stewardship, but shall become yet more irresponsible stewards. Bills like the feeble-minded bill and the inebriate bill, very appropriate names for them, actually arm with scorpions the hand that has chastised the Malatestas and Malekas with whips. The inspector, the doctor, the police sergeant, the well-paid person who writes certificates and passes this, that, or the other. This sort of man is being trusted with more authority, apparently because he is being doubted with more reason. In one room we are asking why the government and the great experts between them cannot sail a ship. In another room we are deciding that the government and experts shall be allowed without trial or discussion to immure anyone's body, damn anyone's soul, and dispose of unborn generations with the levity of a pagan god. We are putting the official on the throne while he is still in the dock. The mere meaning of words is now strangely forgotten and falsified, as when people talk of an author's message without thinking whom it is from. 
and I have noted in these connections the strange misuse of another word. It is the excellent medieval word, charter. I remember the act that sought to save gutter boys from cigarettes was called the children's charter. Similarly, the act which seeks to lock up as lunatics people who are not lunatics was actually called a charter of the feeble-minded. Now this terminology is insanely wrong, even if the bills are right. Even were they right in theory, they would be applied only to the poor, like many better rules about education and cruelty. A woman was lately punished for cruelty because her children were not washed when it was proved that she had no water. From that it will be an easy step in advanced thought to punishing a man for wine-bibbing when it is proved that he had no wine. Rifts in right reason widen down the ages, and when we have begun by shutting up confessedly kind person for cruelty, we may yet come to shutting up Mr. Tom Mann for feeble-mindedness. But even if such laws do good to children or idiots, it is wrong to use the word charter. A charter does not mean a thing that does good to people. It means a thing that grants people more rights and liberties. It may be a good thing for gutter boys to be deprived of their cigarettes. It might be a good thing for aldermen to be deprived of their cigars. But I think the goldsmith's company would be very much surprised if the king granted them a new charter in place of their medieval charter, and it only meant that policemen might pull the cigars out of their mouths. It may be a good thing that all drunkards should be locked up, and many acute statesmen, King John for instance, would certainly have thought it a good thing if all aristocrats could be locked up. But even that somewhat cynical prince would scarcely have granted to the barons a thing called the Great Charter, and then locked them all up on the strength of it. If he had, this interpretation of the word charter would have struck the barons with considerable surprise. I doubt if their narrow medieval minds could have taken it in. The roots of the real England are in the early Middle Ages, and no Englishman will ever understand his own language or even his own conscience until he understands them and he will never understand them till he understands this word charter. I will attempt in a moment to state in older, more suitable terms what a charter was. In modern, practical and political terms, it is quite easy to state what a charter was. A charter was the thing that the railway workers wanted last Christmas and did not get, and apparently will never get. It is called, in the current jargon, recognition. The acknowledgment in so many words by society of the immunities or freedoms of a certain set of men. If there had been railways in the Middle Ages, there would probably have been a railway men's guild, and it would have had a charter from the king defining their rights. A charter is the expression of an idea still true, then almost universal, that authority is necessary for nothing so much as for the granting of liberties. Like everything medieval, it ramified back to a root in religion, and was a sort of small copy of the Christian idea of man's creation. Man was free, not because there was no God, but because it needed a God 
to set him free. By authority he was free. By authority the craftsmen of the guilds were free. Many other great philosophers took and take the other view. The Lucretian pagans, the Moslem fatalists, the modern monists and determinists, all roughly confine themselves to saying that God gave man a law. The medieval Christian insisted that God gave man a charter. Modern feeling may not sympathize with its list of liberties, which include the liberty to be damned, but that has nothing to do with the fact that it was a gift of liberties and not of laws. This was mirrored, however dimly, in the whole system. There was a great deal of gross inequality, and in other aspects absolute equality was taken for granted. But the point is that equality and inequality were ranks or rights. There were not only things one was forbidden to do, but things one was forbidden to forbid. A man was not only definitely responsible, but definitely irresponsible. The holidays of his soul were immovable feasts. All a charter really meant lingers alive in that poetic phrase that calls the wind a chartered libertine. Lie awake at night and hear the wind blowing, hear it knock at every man's door, and shout down every man's chimney. Feel how it takes liberties with everything, having taken primary liberty for itself. Feel that the wind is always a vagabond, and sometimes almost a housebreaker. But remember that in the days when free men had charters, they held that the wind itself was wild by authority and was only free because it had a father. End of section 12